Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. As you are turning there, I remind you that we began three weeks ago to look at our little version of a Christmas carol, to look at Christmas past and what it meant for Old Testament Israel to long for and await a Savior, a Messiah. Then last week we were able to look at Christmas present, the first Christmas when Jesus was born and how it was not ideal by any stretch of the imagination and yet it was perfect because the doorway to hope is always hopelessness and the Messiah was born in a hopeless time for a people that were struggling, that needed hope and help and salvation. They didn't even know their greatest need, and yet Jesus came to meet it. As we come to this morning, we look at Christmas future. We look at what Christmas holds for us now. And as I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about a TV show that I've been watching with my wife. My wife wrote me into a show. I... I find it interesting because as I watch this show, all I want to do is eat food um, for some strange reason. It's a show called The Biggest Loser, and it's about, it's about losing weight and working out. And all I want to do is just eat food while I'm watching it. But what they do at the end of every episode, and I've watched enough episodes now, um, maybe reluctantly so, but I try to be a good husband and watch what my wife enjoys. What they do at the end of the show is, is a segment called Where Are They Now? And they look at people who have been kicked off, the show, and they look at where they are in their progress now, and this dramatic weight loss, and look at how they're living life now. One of the things that happens at Christmas is we think of Jesus forevermore as a little baby, meek and mild and lowly, and we forget kind of the, the second half of where is he now? What does he look like now? Who is he Because if we keep him in a manger and we keep him meek and mild and humbled and lowly, we miss who our Savior truly is. And so I thought it would be appropriate as we look at kind of Christmas future, as we look at who Jesus is now, to look at him as he is revealed for us in the book of Revelation. When we think of Christmas, we see Jesus as a little baby. Oh, he's so cute, adorable. Oh, precious little Jesus. When John sees Jesus in Revelation, that is not the way that Jesus looks. And it's not the way that John reacts to Jesus. Oh, it's Jesus. Isn't that cute? He falls down like a dead man. Let's read what he sees, what he hears, the revelation of our Savior. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And it said this, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white 
like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or the messengers or the pastors of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is a very different looking Jesus than we looked at last week. And this is the Jesus that is the Jesus after the ascension, after the resurrection when he went back to be glorified, home to be with his father. This is the Jesus at this very second that we worship. This is who Jesus is right now as we speak. Revealed to John in a vision on the island of Patmos. Revelation is an amazing book and it trips a lot of people up because there's a lot of imagery in it that's a little bit difficult to understand. But the reality is Revelation is not difficult to understand. Once you kind of figure out a couple different keys in it, it's not difficult to understand. And we know that intuitively. We know that inherently in the book because the book is written to reveal, not to conceal. It's written to give us descriptions of truths that we must heed, believe, understand. It's written for our good. For our understanding, look back at verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads those who hear the words of the prophecy and, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. How can we heed what we do not understand? This book is written to give hope and to give warning and to give encouragement. And the very first thing that is revealed in this amazing book is Jesus Christ himself. But it's not the same looking Jesus that we saw last week. Meek, mild, lowly, humbled. This is our Savior as he is now in heaven glorified. And this picture of Jesus to John would have been a huge encouragement. And it should be to us as well. You remember the disciples thought this is the Messiah. This is the one who's going to bring in the kingdom. This is the one who's going to establish the throne that will never end. The kingdom that will last forever. We looked at the hope that Old Testament Israel desired their Messiah to be who they wanted him to be. And many thought Jesus was that Messiah. And then he dies. Well, surely this can't be the Messiah if he has died. And the disciples are wondering, did we follow the right man? Then he rises from the dead. And they said, yes, we did. We followed the right guy. And then they ask him in Acts chapter 1, as he is raised from the dead, as he is speaking with his disciples, they say, is it now? Is it now that you're going to establish your kingdom? It must be. You must be about to bring in the kingdom that you have promised forever and ever. And then what does he do? He leaves. So obviously the answer is no. (laughs) Not yet. He answers them and says, it's not for you to know. And then he ascends into heaven, gone. 
And they think, well, who do we follow now? What's our direction now? Were we right? Is this the man to follow? And they start proclaiming the gospel, saying, yes, this is our salvation. And then they all start dying, one by one by one, martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Amidst the persecution, John is the last disciple of Jesus Christ, one of the twelve, to be alive. Everyone else has been martyred. He alone, in an attempt to be martyred by being boiled in oil, he survived. God was gracious and kept him alive. And Rome said, we don't want anything to do with you and this Jesus fellow and the way that you're preaching about him, so just get out of here. So they exile him. So the last remaining disciple on the island of Patmos, completely exiled, unable to shepherd the churches, unable to see how the gospel is progressing, wondering, is it over? Maybe he's hearing certain things about the church. He knows these churches, these seven churches. He knows as Jesus speaks to him and says, I want you to send these letters to these seven different churches. He knows these churches. He pastored the church in Ephesus for a while. He knows that some of these churches are doing well, but the majority are not. And in the midst of it all, I I have to believe he's wondering, has the mission failed? We followed Jesus, but was it the right thing to do? And the gospel that we believed, has it ended? Will anybody else receive the good news of Jesus Christ? And then, as if to answer that question, Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks. In this passage, there is a massive amount of encouragement. For followers of Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of difficult times like John was facing. Even in the midst of churches just failing and doing terrible things in the name of Christ. I mean if you look at these churches. Ephesus had abandoned its love for Christ. Completely abandoned. They had left their first love. Pergamum was involved in idolatry and immorality. Thyatira was um, completely involved in sin and worldliness. Compromising the message of the gospel. Sardis, Jesus says, is dead. They are a dead church. Laodicea was so nauseating, you remember, to God that God says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Smyrna and Philadelphia were doing well. They were hanging in there, the minority. But there's hope, even in the midst of all of this. I think for us as well, we look around and the the state of affairs of our churches as a whole doesn't look too good evangelicalism as a whole doesn't look promising. And yet in this passage, there are seven different ways in which Christ is working in his church now, the glorified Christ working in his church now that are an encouragement to John and are an encouragement to us as well. Seven seven different ways in which Christ is working in his church at this very moment. Let's pick it up in verse 9. John The brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus Christ was on the island, exiled again on Patmos because of the word of God, because of the testimony of Jesus. And he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So this is Sunday. And in the spirit just means it's a spiritual vision. It's a it's a vision beyond the human senses. This is something different. This is something supernatural. And it's so intense to John that there are many times in the book of Revelation that he has to be reminded to write down the things he has seen. 
because he's just staring, going, what is this? And somebody has to tap him on the shoulder. No, no, keep writing. Don't stop. I know you're blown away, but don't stop. Keep writing. Even here, there's a voice as he is looking at what's happening that says, write down, write in a book what you're seeing here and send it to the churches. And in verse 12, as he hears this voice speaking to him, John turns and the first thing he sees are seven gold lampstands. And we're told what those lampstands are. Those are the seven churches. Those are the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those are the churches. And there are seven stars that are held in Jesus' hands. And those are the seven pastors of these seven churches. And as he turns, verse 13, in the middle of the lampstands, he sees someone like a son of man, or literally the son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Number one, the first way in which Christ works in his church is seen in verse 13. Jesus, number one, we'll say it this way, Jesus inhabits his church. Jesus inhabits his church He's in the middle of the lampstands. He's directly in the center of these seven lampstands. He has not left the church to be on its own. He has not left the church to his own devices. Though he left the earth, though he ascended into heaven, he did not leave us. He is here with us. He is in the midst of us. He is the son of man. That is a title taken from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, which reads this. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is this son of man. He calls himself son of man more than any other title in the gospel records. And he is here moving in his church. He is the son of God who has taken on human form. Exactly what we celebrated last week. He is in the midst of us. He is still in the midst of his church, working, inhabiting his church. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel as we celebrated last week. As one commentator says, Christ is not an absentee landlord. He is with us. He is for us. He is here. He inhabits his church. And John sees that. John also sees, number two, that Jesus intercedes for his church. Not only inhabits his church, but he intercedes for his church. John sees that this son of man, in verse 13, is clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now, this is either the emblem of a king or a prophet. This is language befitting a king or a prophet. So which is it? It could be both, but we have some clues here for us. First of all, most of the uses of the Greek word for robe in the Old Testament. So the Greek translation of the Old Testament, most of the times you see that word robe used, it's this same word, and it's in reference to the high priest. So it could either be king or priest, but when you see this word robe used, it's most often speaking of the high priest. And then when you see this word golden sash girded around his chest, 
that is only worn in the Old Testament by the high priest. So now we have our two clues to know. This is speaking of Jesus being our great high priest. What does that mean that he is our high priest? What did a high priest do? They stood in the gap between God and man. They were the mediator between the two so that they can speak on behalf of the people and then speak on behalf of God. And as the the human race in all of their sin would say, okay, we need to be presented before God, the high priest would take the sacrifice that would atone for the sins of Israel and he would stand in place of the entire nation offering the sacrifice, making atonement for their sin. He stood in the middle. He stood in the gap. He is the go-between. You know, the book of Hebrews describes Jesus being our great high priest. He is the high priest. No longer, after he is dead, no longer do we need a high priest. The temple is destroyed. The curtain is torn in two. The veil is done. We have complete access through our great high priest interceding for us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says this, that there is only one mediator. There is only one person that can actually bridge that gap, the infinite gap between us as sinners and God as sinless. How can we as sinners stand before a holy God? And 1 Timothy 2, 5 says there's only one mediator, and it's the man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. Job chapter 9, I give you that whole chapter just to look through and to read through. Job is asking this very question. He's asking, I know I'm a sinner, but I want to argue my case before God, but I can't approach God. If he were to approach me, I would be obliterated. So how can I stand before a holy God as a sinner? I can't. And he specifically uses the word umpire. He says, there's no possibility of an umpire standing between me and God. And he's left saying, how can somebody mediate my problem? How can somebody help me and intercede for me? Jesus was Job's answer. Jesus came, lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live, died the death that we deserved, rose to newness of life, and now he stands as our high priest. And this is what he does. Scripture says he ever lives to make intercession for us. This is what he does. Satan brings accusations before God and says, you see Patrick? You see him? He claims to follow you, Jesus. And as he claims to follow you, he still sins. He does the very thing that you died to free him from. God, you know yourself. The wages of sin is death. He deserves to die. He is mine. And that's true. And then Jesus stands and says, no, Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look again. Patrick is wearing the perfect righteousness that I lived out. You have no hold on him. He is forgiven. It is finished. That is his job now, interceding for us so that there is no accusation that ever could stand in heaven's courtroom. Turn to Romans chapter 8, just really quickly. I know you're familiar with this passage, but I want you to see it again in light of Jesus being our intercessor, our great high priest. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If we have been predestined, called, justified, glorified, what shall we say to these things? Since God is for us, who is against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He did the hardest thing. Why couldn't he do the easiest thing now to to keep you? God already paid the supreme price in giving his son, so he will certainly pay the lesser price to protect those whom his son redeemed. And so he says, who's going to bring a charge? Verse 33, against God's elect. Who can do that? Who can bring an accusation? Because God is the one who justifies. Satan can accuse all he wants, but it's never going to stand. It's never going to stick because you've been justified. You've been declared right. Your sin has been removed. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Rather, yes, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So who's going to separate us? What can separate us? Nothing can separate us because Jesus is our great high priest. He will lose none of his own. He protects us till the end. And one day, this is the beautiful reality of Jesus's intercessory work for us. One day, you and I will all stand in his presence glorified. For those of you who have repented of your sins, have turned to Jesus Christ and followed him as Lord, as Savior, as Master. For those of you who have placed your confidence in Jesus' work alone and nothing that you could do whatsoever, you have the assurance, we have the assurance that we will stand in his presence glorified, completely glorified, completely sinless one day. When you see me on that day, I think it'll be very difficult for you to recognize me. I'll be very, very different from the sinful person I am now. You look at me and go, Michael, say, Patrick, Patrick, that's you? No, no, yeah, it's me. Wow, you're totally different. Yeah, because I'm glorified. No more ounce of sin remains. How did you get here? Because Jesus intercedes for me. He is my great high priest. Back in Revelation chapter 1, John's vision continues. In verse 14, he sees Jesus with his head and his hair white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. We're moving from a picture of Jesus' clothing to a picture of his actual form, moving from his work and what he does to who he is, his person. And in doing this, we see number three, Jesus works not only in inhabiting his church, not only interceding for his church, but number three, purifying his church. Jesus purifies his church. He purifies his church. His head and his hair, white like white wool, like snow. Daniel chapter seven, verse nine, I encourage you just to write that down. That's a picture of God having hair that is white like wool. So this is a reference to Jesus being God because he looks the same as God is identified to being looking like in Daniel chapter 7. The word there for white in the Greek is a brilliant glowing white, not just like a, a flat white like paint that you would just slap onto a wall. This is glowing. This is beautiful. It's pure. His eyes are burning fire. This is a reference in Daniel chapter 10 verse 6 again to God with eyes that are pure that are looking out it's not it's not just a a little light bulb or a candle this is laser vision these are beams that are penetrating this is holy intelligence this is nothing being hidden from god's sight 
This is all a symbol of purity and wisdom and holiness. And then he has burnished bronze feet. Burnished bronze. It's been glowing in the furnace so that all of the impurities would come to the top and be removed. So these are pure feet and they walk around bringing purity wherever they go. Purifying the church. Moving with Jesus as he moves in his church. Leaving a stamp. Leaving a mark of purity wherever he goes. This is why Matthew 18 says that when two or three are gathered in the name of Christ to confront sin, he is there in their midst because as they are attempting to purify the church, they're really just doing what Jesus is doing in purifying the church. His burnished bronze feet go with you when you go to confront sin. He purifies his church. What an absolute blessing to hear that in a world where seems like every month there's a new scandal of a pastor who's fallen, a scandal of some pastor involved in some form of immorality. What a precious truth that God will purify his church. Jesus walks in the midst of his people and purifies them as he does so. Number four, not only does Jesus inhabit his church, intercede for his church, purify his church, but number four, he commands his church. Jesus commands his church. This is in verse 15, middle of verse 15. John hears a voice that was like the sound of many waters. His voice was like the sound of many waters. This isn't like a a babbling brook. This isn't like a bunch of rivers that are connected. This is like Niagara Falls. This is like standing next to or underneath Niagara Falls and trying to speak to one another. It doesn't work. It can't work. You can't hear each other that way. If you try to speak to somebody in the midst of an incredible flow of water, it's not going to work. I won't hear a word you're saying. And so too, when Jesus speaks, everything gets drowned out. When his voice is heard, and his voice is only heard through his word, everything else is drowned out. You can't hear anything else. That's why we attempt every Sunday to gather together and speak from God's word. Speak with authority from what his word says. Because the only authority that the church has is the authority that God gives in his word. It's the only place we can go. And God commands his church through his son's voice speaking. Can you imagine John turning The last time that he had heard his Lord speak, his Lord said, it's not now. The kingdom is not coming now. It's coming later. Wait. I'm going to send a helper. Precious words that came out of the mouth of Christ. And then he leaves. And the very next time that John hears the voice of his master, it's a voice that is crushing. It's a voice that is weighty, that is filled with sobriety and gravity it's a voice that comes cascading down upon his eardrums so much so that john says i I can't even hear anything else but his voice when you open god's word do you hear his voice that way do you hear his voice speaking to you and every other voice fades away that's the way it should be as he commands his church jesus commands his church so He not only inhabits his church, intercedes for his church, purifies his church, and commands his church. Number five, fifthly, he controls his church. Verse 16, Jesus controls his church. How does he do it? In his right hand, he held seven stars. 
these seven stars are the seven pastors, as we'll find out later in chapter 2. These seven stars are the seven pastors of the seven churches. And where are these stars? They're in Jesus' hands. He holds them. They cannot wander. They cannot stray. They cannot leave. They cannot go somewhere else. Jesus holds them captive. The Lord has not left the church to mere human leadership. Even as the little song says, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got pastors in his hands. And he controls them where he desires them to go. He has not left us alone. We are in the palm of his hand. Not only does he control, but he also protects. Sixthly, he protects his church. He protects us. This is in verse 16. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is a four-foot-long, huge sword that would take two hands to wield, and it's simply coming out of his mouth. What is it doing? Turn to chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16 says this, Therefore quickly repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's the same sword. So what is this sword doing? It's making war against people. Who are the people that it's warring against? It's in this compromising church, the church at Pergamum. It's against false witnesses. It's against fakes, deceivers. It's against cults and frauds. Jesus says, you might claim to believe in God, but you don't really, and I'm going to come against you with my sword. The reality is we're not fighting alone. In fact, we're not really fighting at all. The fight that we have is the fight that God is waging war through us and in us and in our midst because he lives to protect his church. Finally, he reflects, Jesus reflects his glory through his church. He reflects his glory through his church. This is the end of verse 16. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. His face was like the sun Brilliant. Try staring at the sun and see how long you can last. Don't really do it. John looks and he sees the brilliance of this face. One of the last memories I'm sure that John has of his Savior's face is a face that was bloodied, beaten beyond recognition, beard pulled out, crown of thorns imprinted on his brow. And now he can't even stare into his face for long for fear of his retinas burning. His face shines. And as he stands in the middle of the seven lampstands, his face is shining brilliantly in the midst of those churches, in the midst of the lampstands. Matthew chapter 13, verse 43 says, The faces of the righteous shine like the sun. We can image the glory that Jesus has. We don't have his glory, but we can image that righteousness. We can image the glory that Jesus is displaying here as we live in the church, as we live righteously amongst one another, as we live to please our Savior. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says that God's glory shines in us to give the knowledge of the gospel, of the glory of God. God's glory shines through his church. So he inhabits his church. Jesus intercedes for his church. He purifies his church. He commands his church. He controls his church. He protects his church. And he reflects his glory through 
his church. What's the response to all of this? John sees him and verse 17 falls down at his feet like a dead man. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, the disciple who was able to recline on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Falls down like a dead man. Says, I can't be in your presence. I'm a dead man. And what does Jesus say? He places his right hand on him and says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead for you, but I'm alive. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. And the keys that I have are the keys to death and to Hades. No more, no more condemnation for you. No more fear of death. No more sting in death. It's been removed. I died for you. Your sins have been paid for. The very reason that you are fearing right now, don't fear. Your sins have been paid for. And then he says, get back to work and write. Verse 1 of chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. You have work to do. Write this down. This is the Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus that at this second is standing in heaven before the Father. This is our great high priest, our God, our King, our Master, our Lord. This is Jesus. And yet, as we celebrated last week, he left this scene. He left this picture to come down, to be born, to humble himself and tabernacle among us, to make his dwelling place among us. It was an amazing story that I heard this last week. It was written by Ron Walters of KKLA, and he said this. It was a typical Bethlehem evening. Dinner was a memory and chores were all done. Parents were busy making their rounds, tucking in their sleepyhead kids. The stars were out, but nothing else was out. The weary town had all but said good night. It may have looked like any other night, yet this was a night the world would never forget. A child was born of a virgin. Little old Bethlehem had certainly seen its share of visitors, but never one like this. And then listen to the description that he gives of Jesus. Coming from heaven to be born as a man. The prophets had provided pieces of this divine puzzle, but even they did not understand the wonder of this event. The Alpha and Omega was born. He who made all flesh was now made of flesh. The Ancient of Days had the skin of a newborn. The same voice that commanded creation into being had the familiar ring of baby talk. Never before had the eternal become so tiny, the almighty so helpless. He had outmuscled Pharaoh's army, but now he was held in Mary's arms. The eyes that see from everlasting to everlasting could barely open. The God who never slumbers was fast asleep. Never has there been greater disparity trading his throne room for a stable, the worship of angels for the lowing of cattle, exchanging hallelujahs for a mother's lullaby. Angels were dispatched to spread the word. And their first stop, the late night shift of shepherds. It was good news. It was great joy. It was one sentence. It was one verse. It was just small, 19 tiny words. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. 
The announcement needed no explanation, only directions. You will find the babe wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Finally, the wait was over. The Messiah had come. Nothing else mattered, not the late hour, nor the restless sheep, nothing. This was an invitation they couldn't refuse, a party they couldn't miss. It was the birthday of the God child. And yet lowly shepherds were summoned. And suddenly their fear was replaced by excitement, doubts with hope. One can only imagine the thoughts of those shepherds as they found the baby king in that makeshift maternity ward. There was no entourage, no ostentatious fanfare, no pompous displays. Where's the red carpet? Where's the blaring trumpets? Where's the royal crib? There was no need for these things. They would have been out of place. Nothing glitzy could have enhanced the wonder of God becoming flesh. There are some appearances that don't need an opening act. And there they were, quiet, perhaps motionless, no doubt. Someone may have asked to hold the baby. One confused shepherd probably wished he had paid attention in Sabbath school. Another may have remembered the prophet's words, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Oh, did they see the irony. They had been watching Bethlehem's sheep, yet now they were beholding the Lamb of God. For years they had supplied animals for the annual sacrifice. But at this moment, God had supplied the eternal sacrifice for the sins of the world. Their business was in serious jeopardy, but their salvation was secure. These eyewitnesses studied every detail, memorized every word, and for years they must have told and retold the accounts of that night. No, Bethlehem has never seen a visitor quite like that before, nor since for that matter. As God often does, he used a nondescript location to change the world. A typical night to revolutionize time. A band of nameless shepherds to tell the world all they had seen and heard. And this year, the wonder of what happened that night is ours to tell. God stepped into time, out of heaven, became a baby that he could save us. Who is Jesus now? What does he look like now? This is what he looks like. Who is he? Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 is an important passage here that I want to read before we close. Two of the most important questions that you could ever answer are who is Jesus and do you know him? You can be right about those two questions and wrong about everything else in life and nothing will matter. It's fine. You're secure. You can be wrong about those two questions and be right about everything else in life and spend eternity in hell separated from God forever. Do not be wrong about these two questions. You cannot be wrong about these two questions and be right with God. You can't. Who is Jesus? Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, all the fullness of deity to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God. Number one, he is God. Jesus is God. All of the attributes that belong to God alone are found in Jesus, so Jesus must be God. Number two, Jesus is creator. By him, verse 16, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Everything was made by him and for him. Jesus is the creator of all things. He created you. You are accountable to him. Number three, Jesus is the sustainer of all things. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He not only created you, but he sustains you. He holds your body together and all of its molecules and everything that's working in your body right now, he holds it all together. Number four, Jesus is Lord. He is the head of the body. He is the Lord of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he would come to have first place in everything. He is the Lord of the church. Number five, he is Savior. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, He is God, he is creator, he is sustainer, he is the Lord of the church, and he is Savior. That's who Jesus is, and my question is, do you know him? Do you know him? The reality is, the picture that we see in Revelation is a picture that we will see again one day. We will see that Jesus coming back. We will see him returning to take those who know him home to be with him for all eternity. The Old Testament Jews were longing and anticipating the coming of their Messiah, and so too we are awaiting the coming again of our Messiah. We are awaiting him to come back. Every time that we celebrate Christmas or Advent coming, we're celebrating the coming of Christ the first time. But every Advent season, we should celebrate the coming of Christ the second time and long for that and hope for that. In the same picture that we see in Revelation, we will see one day in heaven for all of eternity. To this end, Johnny Erickson taught us, says this, On this side of eternity, Christmas is still a promise. Yes, the Savior has come, but the story is not finished. Every Christmas is still a turning of the page until Jesus returns. Every December 25th draws us closer to home. Each Christmas brings us closer to Jesus' glorious return to earth when we see him as he is the king of kings and the lord of lords that will be christmas indeed talk about christmas gifts just think of this abundance first corinthians chapter 1 verse 7 you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our savior jesus christ to be revealed and carols she writes you're about to hear singing like you've never heard before listen 
Revelation 19.6, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns. Christmas choirs, she writes. Never was there a choir like the one about to be assembled. Revelation 15, 2 and 3. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. True and just are your ways, King of the ages. True, Main Street in your town may be beautifully decorated for the season, but picture this, Revelation 21, 21. The 12 gates of the city were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. Oh, and yes, we love the glow of candles on a cold winter's night and the twinkling of Christmas life in the dark, but can you imagine this? Revelation 22, 5. There will be no more night. They will not need the, la- the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Heaven is about to happen, she writes. The celebration is about to burst on the scene. We stand tiptoe at the edge of eternity, ready to step into the new heaven and the new earth. I can hardly wait. I can't wait to sing, O come all ye faithful, as I gather with my friends and family to worship the Lord in heaven. I can't wait to give him the gift of my refined faith, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. On bended knee alongside kings and shepherds, together we will praise him and sing glory to God in the highest. And for eternity we will follow the one who is the bright morning star. Christmas is an invitation to a celebration yet to happen. If you have a Christmas longing, you are about to be satisfied. Just hold on and say with me, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We've looked at Christmas past. We've looked at Christmas present. Brothers and sisters, there will be one day when this life is over. There will be one day when we will all give an account before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There will be one day when we can no longer repent, when we can no longer decide to follow Jesus and surrender our lives. There is coming a day when it's all over. My, my greatest prayer and my plea and, and my encouragement to your soul, do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? Do you know that if you were to die tonight and stand before him, that you would see him face to face in all of his glory and hear the words, do not fear? I died for you. Or would you hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. This Jesus is both beautiful and terrifying. This is the Jesus that we worship. If you've never come to a place of genuine surrender, repenting of your sins, turning to Jesus Christ, knowing that there's nothing you could ever do in your own good works to earn God's favor, can I just plead with you today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn from your sin, turn to Jesus Christ, follow him, and plead on the basis of his death and resurrection for mercy and grace. You will find it. You will find it. We get to sing now 
of this scene in Revelation. We get to sing now of this Jesus that we worship. And may we always remember, even as we might be going to a few more Christmas parties before this season is over, and you see that little baby Jesus, lowly, meek, and mild in the manger, he is not that way anymore. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords in glory, ever living to make intercession for you and for me. Father, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world so that those who would place their trust and faith and confidence in you alone and follow you, they would find freedom. They would find forgiveness. They would find new life. You are worthy to receive all the glory, all the honor, all the power, all the dominion, all the authority. You alone are worthy. And so we join with those choirs of angels that sang so many years ago when you came to earth and are singing even now, glory to God in the highest. You are holy, you are worthy, you are our king. Be pleased in our praises, we pray. Amen.